All right, thanks to Jim and our uh, song crew that meets on Wednesday nights. And that not only do they lead us in our song service, but they teach us new songs. So thank you for that. That was a new song to me. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn in the Old Testament to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapters 5 and 6. And we're going to go from chapter 5, verse 10, through chapter 6 and verse 9. So if you're using a digital copy, you can kind of be ready to flip back and forth. We've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes now. This is the sixth week in a row, and we're only about midway through it. It's fun. It's been challenging uh, to preach, at least. I don't know if it's been challenging to hear, but I hope that you've been blessed by it, and we're going to continue to study right through it. Uh, last week, I started with a question. We just looked at the first seven verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and my question is, when you come to church, what do you expect to get out of it? And we talked about how um, we may be asking the wrong questions. In those first seven verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Koheleth, the main voice, that's the Hebrew word for the teacher, the preacher, the main voice in Ecclesiastes basically tells us, my summary, show up. Show up, but check yourself, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Listen more. Speak less. Revere God and back it up. What you worship, what you claim when you come to church, back it up with how you live. That felt like a little bit more aggressive sermon. So this week, we're going to ask a different question, and maybe it'll be less aggressive, but maybe even more intrusive. What will satisfy you? Think about life. Where do you find satisfaction? What satisfies you? And whatever that may be, how long does it last until you need more of whatever that is? My first thought with this question, and I'm not sure why, but I thought of chocolate cake. Every year on my birthday, that's what I ask. I ask for chocolate cake. Jessica cuts the slices before she puts the icing on top, so the icing melts in between the sides of each slice, and I'll eat it. And there's some nights, I confess, that I'll eat three or four pieces of cake, and I scrape the sides, and I just keep going. It is very satisfying for about 15 minutes. And then your stomach hurts. And then the taste buds aren't satisfied anymore, so either you go back for more, but the more that you do that, there's consequences the heavier you get. What satisfies you? There's some people who, when they're struggling with stress or just overwhelmed with life or have a lot of problems in life and they want to forget it, they turn to excessive drinking. And maybe that satisfies you for a few hours at a time, but that wears off. You pay the consequences the next day, and then you just need more and more and more. Or you can think of sexual fulfillment. And earlier this morning I was thinking, yeah, our culture turns to sexual fulfillment, but it's not just our culture, it's the biblical world as well. People, human beings, try to turn towards sexual fulfillment, but outside of a marriage, that's never going to fulfill, and you're always going to just need more and more. You can think about gambling and going to Las Vegas, and I'm not condemning people who go to Las Vegas. We went to Las Vegas as a trip last year because it was cheap, and we're going to talk about money today. But Las Vegas keeps going because you put money into those machines, even if you win a little bit. You're like, I need a little bit more. And the list could go on and on. What about money? Does money satisfy you? And if money satisfies you making money, how much until it's an enough, or when do you need more? John D. Rockefeller was once asked how much money is enough, and he said just a little bit more. As we study Ecclesiastes chapter 5, 
starting in verse 10 through chapter 6 and verse 9. This is kind of the topic, the main thrust of this text is these insatiable appetites that we have as human beings and why they never really satisfy. And I want to say a quick word about the text. When this was originally written, it was not split up into chapter divisions. Sometimes the chapter divisions are helpful. This is a time where it's not. Uh, chapter 6 was not originally like, hey, this is the end of a thought, now we begin chapter 6. So that's an unfortunate chapter division because what you see is this flow through the text, and I'll show you at the end. But let's just go, and we'll take a few verses and, and just dwell in it for a few minutes. We'll start in chapter 5 and verse 10. It says, The lover of money will not be satisfied with money, nor the lover of wealth with gain. This also is vanity, it's havel. The lover of money is what he says. Who is a lover of money? Well, if you're like me, the first thing that you think of is the lovers of money are those who are rich. But the more I thought about that, I was like, that's not true. Because I know poor people who are lovers of money. I think oh, there's a lot of people who love money, so this verse is not limited to just those who are wealthy. It's to anybody who money becomes the ultimate for you. But we all have to deal with money. I mean, you've got to have a little bit of money to pay the bills, to buy food, to put a roof over your head. You need some money to take that trip or be jealous of those who get to take that trip. But we all deal with money in one way or another. Money can provide temporary security. You may feel secure because you have money in the bank, and that's good. And we'll talk in just a minute about how that may not always be there, and it's not going to last with you into eternity. Money, having money may make you feel temporarily significant. Because maybe you can buy the new clothes, the new cars, the nice big house, and it makes you feel significant around your peers. But it's just temporary. Money can provide you temporary relief. Like if you're really struggling in life and you just want to escape, go spend a bunch of money. But we all deal with money, but can you be trusted to deal with money the way that God would want you to deal with money? And how much is enough? I mean, how much money would satisfy you? This verse is saying the lover of money will not be satisfied with money. Because how much is enough? Well, the more that you have, the more that you spend, and the more that you need, so you need more, it can become a very vicious cycle. Look at the end of that verse. It says, this is also, this is vanity. So I played this game with my kids yesterday. Uh, I don't know if it's called dollar drop or money drop or whatever. You can see right there you have your uh, thumb and your index finger, and I had a $100 bill, and I dropped it. If they could catch it, they got to keep it. And my son did catch it on the very first try because I did it wrong, and he went and put it in his piggy bank, and I had to get on to him and tell him this is just a sermon illustration. He does not actually get to keep that $100 bill. But if you play the game right, you get the idea. The money just drops right in between your fingers, and you, and you think it, you're right there. You think you can have it, and you don't quite grab it, and then it's frustrating because it just falls to the ground. Like if I were to bring people up on stage, they might get excited at the idea of just easily winning $100, but you just can't quite grab it. So that's the word that he's using. It's havel. This is his key word in the study of the book of Ecclesiastes. It can be translated in your Bible as meaningless or vanity from the NRSV, what I'm reading from, or maybe pointless or empty or absurdity or futility. There's a variety of ways this word is translated in English, but it just means vapor or mere breath, the breath that you exhale. 
And it's there for just a moment, but you can't grab a hold of it. It's elusive. The lover of money will never be satisfied. It's vanity. And those who love wealth is a moving target. So if you want to get rich, and that's your goal in life, that's your ultimate, well, the more money that you make, you're going to start comparing yourself to other people. And as I had a friend humbly tell me this past Monday night, there's always going to be somebody out there who has more than you. No matter how much you have, you're going to find somebody who has more than you, and if you're playing the comparison game, then you're going to need to make even more. It's a moving target. It's impossible. The Bible has a lot to say about money. Some estimate that Jesus talked about money more than he talked about heaven or hell combined. Some preachers estimate that there's about 500 verses on prayer throughout the Old and New Testament, a little less than 500 verses on faith, but over 2,000 verses on money. And obviously Jesus talked a lot about money and the rich and the poor, and if you wanted to just sum it up in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24 in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Maybe we've heard that so much in our life that we just kind of tune it out. You can't serve both God and money. So will your money have you or will you have your money? Is your money a gift from God or has it become a little G God? What satisfies you? If it's money, great, but how long will that last until you just keep needing more and more? Verse 11, when goods increase... Those who eat them increase. And what gain has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Some of these verses, these proverb-like sayings, sound a little bit weird. But one way of summarizing verse 11 is with, when you have wealth, it invites a crowd. So the more that you have, the more that people may come to you in, in need. So that may provide you an opportunity to be generous, but it may be that people just keep coming to you because they know you have money, and so they need you for your money, and it may turn you bitter and maybe less trusting and less likely to give. Again, it can be a vicious cycle. In verse 12, it says, Sweet is the sleep of laborers, whether they eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not let them sleep. So wealth invites a crowd, and wealth promotes worry. This verse talks about sleep. How many of you, the older you get, the more important you realize sleep is? Anybody? I, I know that's me. Um, about a year ago, a little over a year ago, I got tired of waking up every morning in a lot of low back pain. And the more we thought about it, the more we realized, well, our mattress is over 10 years old, it's broken, and where I've been laying on it for 10 years is completely sunken in, so when I lay on my side, my, like my hips are twisted weird, so I'm waking up in this horrible pain. So we decided we're going to buy a new mattress. But we're limited on money. So we went around all these different stores here in town, laid on all the mattresses. Uh, we examined them. We talked about prices. And we finally settled on a mattress. And guess which one we went with? The cheapest one. Out of all the ones that we looked at, I just went with the cheapest one because I don't like to spend money. And I know that the more you spend, the more likely you are to to run out. And then we went and bought some cheap egg crates and put those on top of the mattress. And now it's comfortable again. you got to rotate the mattress every once in a while. But we need sleep. This verse is saying, sweet is the sleep of laborers, seeming to indicate if you just work hard, 
and you don't have an excessive amount of stuff and you don't love money so you're not worried when you lay down to go to bed at night you sleep but the rich well they may not sleep well maybe because they're staying up late worrying or the way the verse is written it may be because they overindulge and their indigestion won't let them sleep but there's some side effects to money verse 13 and 14 it says there's a grievous ill which means that he's about to kind of give you a worst-case scenario. There's a grievous ill that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owners to their hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. Though they are parents of children, they have nothing in their hands. Verse 13, it says, money kept. So this is about somebody who is hoarding money, but then there's just the reality of life that just because you hoard money and you store it up doesn't mean that it's always going to be there, and then this worst-case scenario is money lost. There's no guarantee that you'll always have it. Whoever this guy is, there was a bad venture, he made a bad deal, and he lost all of it. I was reminded of a story of a guy who grew up in this tribe, the Churches of Christ, uh, but was a famous musician, well, wasn't famous at the time, was a great musician, great singer, wound up on a television show, and he won, and he won $100,000. He got a few record deals with Capitol Records, had a few top 40 hits, was living a pretty good life, but then he decided to leave the music industry. He actually went into ministry, but then one day, the police showed up at his house in front of his wife and his children, and he was arrested because he had been stealing. And what his wife discovered on that day was something that had been hidden from her, but he wanted to live in neighborhoods that he couldn't afford, live in houses that he couldn't afford, drive cars that he couldn't afford, and then cover that debt with credit cards, and then one day he realized he's $800 in the hole, and he can't even fill up his car with gas. So he went to a parking lot, and stooping to a new low, he was checking car doors to see which ones were unlocked and stealing money from them. And this went on for several weeks until eventually he was caught and arrested and paid the penalty for it. And now he's trying to, uh, you know, he's confessed what he's done wrong and he's trying to get his life back in order. But that's somebody who once had a lot of money and then it was just gone. And instead of dealing with it honestly, maybe asking for help, and working on debt relief, he tried to still to cover that. There's no guarantee that we'll always have money. Verses 15 through 17, it says, As they came from their mother's womb, so they shall go again. Naked as they came, they shall take nothing for their toil that they may carry away with their hands. This also is a grievous ill. Just as they came, so they shall go. And what gain do they have from their toiling for the wind? Besides all their days, they eat in darkness, in much anger and sickness and resentment. Uh, this is a quote from Job chapter 1, verse 21. After Job loses everything, naked I came into this world out of my mother's womb, and naked I will return. Or you think about what you kind of see on this old black and white picture, the old statement, you never see a U-Haul following a hearse. You know what that means? That once you're gone... And death is an important topic in the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm tempted not to say this, but we're going to talk more about death next week as we get into chapter 7, so don't just not show up because we're talking about death. But we're all going to die is what Ecclesiastes keeps saying, and you don't get to take any of your stuff with you. 
Naked you come into this world and naked you leave. It's similar to a parable that Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 12. It's called the parable of the rich fool is what we call it. But it's about a guy who had everything, and so he just kept building bigger barns to store all of his stuff. But you fool, this very day, your life will be demanded of you. What are you going to do with all this stuff? Because you can't, you can't take it with you. So to summarize what we've read so far, uh, what will satisfy you? How long will it last until you need more? Well, we often turn to money, but money won't satisfy. It's vapor. It's elusive. And it has some side effects. It's not going to last. It may cause some sleep disturbances. You might lose it. And even if you make good investments and you never lose it, you're still not going to get to take it with you in the afterlife. And you flip over to chapter 6, and we'll come back to the end of chapter 5 here in just a minute. And I will admit it takes a little bit of a dark turn here, but I'm just going to read it and point out a few things from chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And I will also admit that this summer, as I was studying Ecclesiastes originally, one morning I woke up, I read chapter 6, and the only note that I wrote down was, I, I don't understand what I just read. So it's taken a while to have an understanding of what this even means, but... Starting in verse 1, it says, There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy upon humankind. Those to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that they lack nothing of all that they desire. They have it all, yet God does not enable them to enjoy these things, but a stranger enjoys them. This is Hevel, this is vanity. It is a grievous ill. A man may father a hundred children. That sounds insane. A man may father a hundred children and live many years, but however many years are the days of however many are the days of his years, if he does not enjoy life's good things or has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness. And in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. Now, without trying to break that down and explain everything, because some of it is a little, I don't know, too dark, I guess. But basically what he's saying is, here's a guy who has wealth, possessions, and honor. Literally, he has it all, but he just can't enjoy it. He fathered a hundred children. Which, in the ancient world, that was something that would have brought a lot of honor. In the modern world, that sounds like I would have already had a heart attack by now to have even more than two. But fathering a hundred children and then living a thousand years twice over, so more than twice as long as Methuselah from Genesis chapter 6. He has it all, but he can't enjoy it. Have you ever known people that just can't enjoy it? Can't enjoy what they have, even though any of us have more than most of the people on planet Earth right now. There's an old preacher story about a hunter, a farmer, and he had a neighbor, and his neighbor was a grumpy old man. His neighbor was always complaining and always negative, and so this hunter-farmer guy decided that he was going to try to impress that grumpy old neighbor. He took him on a hunting trip, and he brought his dog along with him. He showed him all the tricks that his dog could perform, and the grumpy old neighbor was not impressed by it. So he tried one more trick. He got into the duck blind. They shot a duck. The duck landed on top of the pond. He sent the dog to go retrieve the duck. 
The dog walked on water, like ran on top of the water, got the duck, ran back on top of the water, dropped the duck at their feet. The farmer turned to his grumpy neighbor and he said, what do you think about that? And the neighbor said, your dog can't swim, can he? So maybe you've heard that before. But it illustrates, okay, there's people out there that just cannot seem to enjoy life. And I'm afraid sometimes I'm in that category. I know we all struggle with negative thinking. And sometimes it's just hard. It's like a dark cloud can loom over us. But one of the strangest things about these six verses is he's saying God is the agent. God is withholding. They have everything, this guy has everything he could need, but he can't enjoy it. God does not enable them to enjoy it, but why? Well, verses 7 through 9 says, For all human toil is for the mouth, yet the appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage have the wise over the fools, and what do the poor have who, who know how to conduct themselves before the living? Another better than proverb in verse 9, better is the sight of the eyes and the wandering of desire, or the NIV says the roving of the appetite. This also is vanity and a chasing after the wind. The person in the first six verses can't enjoy what they have because they're never satisfied. As human beings, we have these insatiable appetites. And this will be in your discussion guide with your small group, and it's not to share with the whole group, but for you to think within yourself, what appetites that may be over the top or out of control or insatiable do you have in your life? Some of them may be private. I mentioned a few from the beginning, but maybe you have this insatiable appetite to make more money, maybe it's food, maybe it's sexual fulfillment, maybe it's shopping. There's all kinds of appetites that we have that sometimes we just keep craving more and it drives us to some pretty destructive places. But these appetites that we have, these roving appetites, they're never fully satisfied. Now you, you take the, the flow of everything we've talked about. Is there anything positive in this? Well, if you went back to the end of chapter 5, he gives a glimmer of hope in verses 18 through 20. He said, this is what I've seen to be good. It is fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil in which one toils under the sun, the few days of life God gives us. For this is our lot. Likewise, all to whom God gives, so God again is the agent, God gives wealth and possessions, and whom He enables to enjoy them and to accept their lot and find enjoyment in their toil, this is a gift of God. So there's something positive here. He said there's three gifts of joy. Eat, drink, and find satisfaction in your work and your toil. Basically what, he, what he's saying is enjoy the moment. This is God's gift to you. Life can be hard. The toil in which we toil can be frustrating. Earlier in Ecclesiastes he says, so I hated life. So he's kind of contradicting himself back and forth. But he says, hey, you know what? There's one thing you can do. You can just enjoy the moment. So you, now you take everything that we've read, and here's a little chiastic structure for you. But honestly, if you look at this, it helps you see how this all connects together. So in chapter 5, what we started with, money is not going to satisfy you, and it's not going to last. You might lose it all, or you will in the end. So enjoy the moment, he says. Eat, drink, and find satisfaction in your toil. But then you keep going and don't split it up with chapter 6. But there are people who have just an inability to enjoy. Why? Because they can never be satisfied with these insatiable appetites. 
Maybe you find yourself in there somewhere. As I begin to wrap this up, what I want to do is look at this from a Christian perspective. I'll give you two little points here in the end. From 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you want to turn over there. I've told you from the beginning, as we read Ecclesiastes, we do not dismiss the wisdom that we learn, but this was written before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So we can read this through the lens of Jesus Christ. So thinking about this question, what's going to satisfy you? How long will it last until you need more? Well, here's the, the antithesis to this. Here's the Christian perspective. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 through 10. Brad Perry read this for us earlier today. I want to read it again. It says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. What does that sound like? That's Ecclesiastes 5. That's Job chapter 1. Paul's quoting the same thing. We brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. You never see a U-Haul following a hearse. Verse 8, But if we have food and clothing... We will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You know, truthfully, money is morally neutral. Like as I said, we all have to deal with money and don't have money, you're not going to eat. But the love of money, Paul says, that is the root of all kinds of evil. So what do we do? What's the response? Well, he says contentment. Being content. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Be content with your food and clothing and the things that you have. Don't complain about what you don't have. Be thankful for what you do have. Enjoy the moment, kind of like Ecclesiastes said. So think about your current life right now. I know things may be hard. You may be going through a trial. It has been excruciatingly hot all summer. It's cooling down outside. The leaves are changing colors. Enjoy it. Put a smile on your face and just enjoy the day that we have and the season that we're in. After a long, hard day of work, one of my favorite things to do that I cannot wait to do is take my shoes off, especially in the summer. My feet get all sweaty. It's kind of nasty. And I can't wait to take off my shoes. Enjoy that. You work for it. Take your shoes off. Now go spend some time with your kids outside. Have a good conversation with your wife. Enjoy the moment. Enjoy some good food. And occasionally if you get to go to a feast, enjoy that. If you have some good friends, like this weekend I went back home and I spent time with some old friends from high school and just laughing and thinking about some old memories. Just enjoy that. Savor the moment. Savor what you have. Be content with what you have. Go outside and look at the sunset every once in a while and thank God that you've had another day. Instead of loving money, be content with what you do have. And then skipping down to verses 17 through 19 of 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for what? For our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. How do you know if you love money? Well, Paul says you, you should be willing to give it away. Don't put your hope in wealth. 
But God gives us everything we need for our enjoyment, but be generous and willing to share. So there's your second little antithesis to, to these insatiable appetites that we have. Be content with what you have and be generous. You want to know if you love money, are you willing to give it away? Or as I heard one preacher say, own nothing and steward everything. What do you own? Is it the money that you have, the clothes that you drive, the house that you live in, the cars, or what did I say, the clothes that you wear, the cars that you drive, whatever maybe, you get the idea. You own it, right? You worked for it, you put in hard work for it, but who gave you the ability and the brain to make the money? God is the one who provided you in this short life that we live. So maybe you don't own it, you just steward what God has given you. Be generous and willing to share So much of these appetites that we think will satisfy us really are just treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. So in the end, the only thing that will truly satisfy us is life and God's kingdom and putting our faith and our hope and lining up our daily lives with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Maybe that sounds cliche to say on a Sunday morning, But the more you chase after these things, the more that you might realize, yeah, that's true. It's following Christ, it's knowing Christ, to becoming like Him in His death, burial, and resurrection. On this earth, you might find some satisfaction in that, being content with what you have and being generous, just like we have a generous God. But you will find true satisfaction in the life to come. So that's your invitation today. I know we have one baptism. So I'm going to walk back to the back with my daughter, but if anybody desires to have a conversation about baptism or you need to be prayed for, I actually will be in the back, so I won't be available to you, but we have elders who will be available to you. We're going to sing a few songs. We're going to celebrate uh, a new sister in Christ, and then whatever else that we may need, need to pray for, you can come forward, find an elder around the room. Jim, I want to invite you back up, and we'll continue to stand and sing.